0: The Thames is exactly as wild as it isn't. Any city built around a river has to contend with the killer reality at the centre of its world, the sweeping endlessness of water constrained above and below, bridges and tunnels grasping its tangled nettle, carrying with it the spectre of death and shit and rot and chaos, lapping with the tides against sheer concrete flood breaks. The name Blackfriars Bridge is used to refer to two bridges, crossing over a little west of the centre of the historic city. The first bridge is for cars and pedestrians, the second is a rail bridge, which also serves as the platform for Blackfriars Station. Between the two, there's a series of red columns jutting out of the Thames, remnants of the original rail bridge, which was demolished in 1985. These columns are a fascinating relic in a city constantly forced to recycle its forebear's work, an ornamental reminder of the city as a cycle of pragmatic industry. The bridge came down because it was unsafe, but the columns, they had to stay. What's most surprising, though, is that they've not been used for anything else in the intervening 35 years. All the artists, architects, and public space designers in London haven't been able to find something material to put on those rare bits of highly visible hard standing in the centre of the city. There are no mad dreams about the Blackfriars Columns, because there can't be. You see, something intangible already stands atop the columns, something which refuses to be overwritten, which blanks the imagination of even the most committed dreamer. A signal is being broadcast from the ghost of Blackfriars Bridge. It's audible all over the world. You can hear it now. It's controlling you, subliminally in ways you can barely perceive, and those who control it will not let anything or anyone stop them. I'm James Thompson, this is Subterraneans. do a known as P2, or at least that's how I'm going to refer to it, was, perhaps is, an Italian fascist organisation which began life as a masonic lodge before being expelled in 1976 and setting up as a state within a state, recruiting powerful members of the government and the media to help promote the far right throughout the 80s and beyond. Silvio Berlusconi, the former Prime Minister of Italy, was a well-known member of P2, having joined in 1978 and although a possible membership list was leaked in 1981 many members of the group remain unknown to this day p2 operated exactly as you'd imagine serving as a shadow network of powerful businessmen and government officials who look to overthrow or at minimum undermine and control italian democracy in favor of fascist domination it can easily be linked to operation gladio a CIA-led effort to promote stay-behind groups, which would violently oppose any advances by the left within Italian society. These groups were largely comprised of latent fascists and mafiosos, and are linked to a swath of violence which rocked the country throughout the 70s. Thousands of left-wing activists were forced to flee the country, with those who remained being arrested, tortured, imprisoned, and sometimes killed. How is all this relevant to Blackfriars Bridge, you might be asking? On 18th June 1982, a man named Roberto Calvi was found hanged from scaffolding beneath Blackfriars Bridge. In his pockets were a number of bricks, a forged passport, and around $15,000 in cash, in three different currencies. The expensive watch on his wrist was stopped at 1.52am. Calvi was well known as the manager of one of Italy's largest banks. He was known informally as God's Banker due to his close links with the Vatican, and at the time of his death, the bank he managed was embroiled in scandal due to the exposure of its network of fraud and corruption to the benefit of fascist groups across the world. He had fled Italy on the 10th of June, having been released on bail prior to his expected conviction, and was hiding out in London with a former contact under an assumed name. London is a big swamp to try to hide in. Unfortunately for Calvi, it wasn't big enough. He'd written to the Pope to warn him that the bank was on the verge of collapsing under the weight of fraudulent transactions and cover-ups, confirming the connection between the Vatican, the Mafia, and a whole variety of right-wing regimes across South America. And he'd also confirmed that they couldn't carry on any longer. And that, that just wouldn't do. We don't know exactly what happened to Calvi on the night of 17th of June. His death was initially ruled a suicide, but later this was changed to a murder ruling, after it was proven that he couldn't feasibly have climbed onto the scaffolding with pockets full of bricks without help. The most common theory is that he was lured to a riverboat dock a little way upriver, garrotted, and then strung up from the bridge as a message. Why there though, of all places? Why go to the trouble of luring Calvi onto a boat and then suspending him from a bridge in the middle of the Thames for all to see? His pockets were already full of rocks, why not just chuck him in the river and be done with it? There's a clear enough explanation, if you take into account the symbolic element of these neo-fascist cults. The members of P2 would wear black robes to their meetings, leaning into the pageantry of the secret society as a concept in reference to these robes, they took to calling themselves the Frati Neri, the Black Friars. Calvi's murder is still officially unsolved, since the mafiosos who likely carried it out are probably already dead or in jail, but the system that it implicated remains in place. Berlusconi and his right-wing associates remain colossally powerful within Italian society and across Europe, and although P2 itself is likely no more, the network of neo fascists seeded across Europe by Gladio and other such stay behind missions is only growing in power. By this point, the idea of a number station is pretty firmly ingrained in pop cultural mythology. If you haven't fallen down the rabbit hole of number stations by this point, I guess you've been paying attention to a very different internet than me. To bring you up to speed, though, number stations are shortwave radio broadcasts, consisting of cryptic messages, most often long strings of numbers, hence the name, which are commonly assumed to be related to international espionage or the military. These stations take a wide variety of forms, but they do have one thing in common. They're intensely creepy to listen to. Generally, they broadcast according to a set schedule, and seem to be nonsense to the casual listener. Some include fragments of music, nursery rhymes, poems, or sections of morse code spelling out nonsense words. I've got an old set of speakers in my flat, and the wires on them sometimes pick up radio transmissions. I'll be sitting quietly, and they'll suddenly fade in on some strange noise part of a song, or an announcer reading the news. The part of London I live in used to have plenty of pirate radio stations, but since they all switched to streaming online, it's mostly been quiet for a few years. Since I got back from the Allgate Tunnel, it's started again. It's been picking up a number station which consists of a little jingle, followed by a series of numbers and then three words, in languages I don't recognise. I can pick up the frequency on a regular radio, but it shifts at random, meaning I have to constantly be monitoring the dial and swinging back and forth across frequencies just to pick it up normally. Six, four, eight. Strangest of all though, and the reason I can't stop listening to it, Seems to be broadcasting in my voice. Five. Why are conspiracy theories so fascinating to us? Why do I find myself reading endless stories of cults and symbols, rituals and costumes, strange beasts and ancient spirits? Quite apart from my own interest in them, I think stories about organised villainy strike most of us as strangely comforting. Our world is chaotic and unprincipled. Filled with monsters we can see but can't fathom. So the idea of the people controlling the world having some sort of code that they live by means that, hell, at least we know it's not completely random. More importantly, stories about mafiosos and cultists serve as a character study of the broader phenomena of capitalism. The Godfather is the obvious example, a tragedy about a man who turns into his father who, recreates to devastating effect the conditions he first tried to rebel against, but even chaotic, nightmarish visions of the occult like the Wicker Man feel unsettlingly familiar. We spend our lives tumbling through the grasping hands of incomprehensible organisations, faltering and failing and landing wherever fate drops us. It's also completely beyond our control, enforced to favour those in power all so much hostile indifference and casual cruelty, that watching Christopher Lee and his parishioners hold hands and sing as a man burns feels cathartic, honestly. Targeted cruelty is so much more explicable to us than the crushing monotony of poverty and late capitalism. I would much rather believe the powerful hate us than that they just don't think about us at all. The trouble is, I don't think that's the case. The signs and symbols the wealthy and powerful use to communicate may as well be an entirely different language, and our ability to occasionally comprehend them is as irrelevant to their function as a dog's ears pricking up when his owner goes to the fridge. Roberto Calvi was hanged from Blackfriars Bridge as a message from one group of wealthy, powerful people to another group of wealthy, powerful people. Blithe and brazen, as we look on the little people, walking through this world as ghosts. I spoke to a friend of mine about tracking down the number station. Same friend who helped me break into Billionaire's Row in season one, if you remember. One of the squats she used to live at had a pirate radio station operating out of the upper floor, and she picked up a few tips about triangulating signals to specific locations. Anyway, that's how I found myself standing on the South Bank on a freezing Sunday morning in January, surreptitiously holding an aerial overhead and talking into a walkie talkie trying to avoid the gaze of the armed police who now parade around the city like they own the place. The signal was weak, fluctuating in and out, but clearly visible on the equipment she brought along, all analogue dials and suspicious wires tumbling out of Tesco carrier bags. Oddly, though, she couldn't hear the broadcast, even though it was clearly registering on our gear. The station seemed to be just transmitting static on her end. On the opposite side of the river. Well, I could clearly hear the number station repeating its bizarre message. No matter. I cast it aside as we moved closer to the source, occasionally stopping to reconfigure whenever the signal jumped frequencies. It was long, slow work, but eventually we tracked the source. Blackfriars Bridge. After walking back and forth for a while, her on the bridge, me on the platform at Blackfriars Station, We determine the likely source is the second set of standing columns from the old bridge, counting from the north bank of the Thames. Somehow, they're broadcasting a signal loud enough to be heard all over London, from within a solid concrete pillar. There's a folk story about bridge construction which seems to transcend cultures. You can find versions of it all across the world albeit with different spirits and deities attached. The bones of the story are as follows. Building a bridge is seen as a great insult to the river spirit which it crosses over. A bridge serves as a sort of harness which buckles the rampaging water in place, and therefore, any bridge which doesn't do something to appease the river will be washed away in short order. Therefore, the first person to cross a bridge upon its completion must be sacrificed on the far side and thrown into the river. In a lot of ancient cultures, this sacrifice would be a prisoner or a captured enemy, but in others, it would be the lead architect, who would be press-ganged into the project fully aware that they would be killed upon its completion. There are, in turn, myths of architects who stall bridges endlessly, making ever more elaborate designs in order to forestall their own deaths. There's an old Welsh legend of an architect who was challenged to bridge the River Severn, but, aware of the consequences of completing the project, kept turning in bizarre and improbable designs, eventually insisting on a plan which would reach from one side of the river to the other by first circumnavigating the entire globe. For his insolence, the local lord sentenced him to build this exact bridge by hand, and legend has it that he continues to gather stones on the beach to this day, having offended both the landed gentry and the much more spiteful ocean spirit with his arrogance. In some places, though, this myth has interacted with another classic urban legend, that of the ill-fated construction worker, who falls into wet concrete during a major building project and is sealed inside the finished construction. Some versions of the myth tell of the first person to cross a newly completed bridge, being sealed inside the foundations, alive or dead, their spirit fated to watch over travellers. On bridges in some parts of Cornwall, for example, it's customary to leave a penny for the watcher the first time you cross a local bridge. The upright beams of old Blackfriars stand proud in the river, broadcasting some incomprehensible signal which calls to me, directs my research, steers me from place to place irresistibly. I wonder how many have died for that bridge. I wonder what insulted spirits live on in those pillars. Was there more to Calvi's death than just the brute symbolism of the Fratineri? Why can't I sleep anymore, as the wires in my room echo and reverberate with a number station that I'm sure is meant for me? The signal is getting stronger. If you look closely at low tide, the base of each of the Blackfriars columns has the vague outline of what could maybe, perhaps, be a doorway. I can see it from the eastern side of the bridge, my feet on the parapet, leaning out over the edge, portable radio dialed to the station's frequency. I can't get in there without a boat, but maybe I could swim. It's, It's not that far down to the water. Maybe if I just lean a a little further, I could finally understand. It would all make sense. If I could just get a little closer, I could just reach out my hand and touch it. And then, just as quickly as it began, the number station jumps frequencies. And I'm alone once more. Next episode of Subterraneans. I take a look at the experimental tube lines which lie buried beneath the city, and what lives on within them. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at subterpod on Twitter or by email through subterpod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app since it really helps getting my name out there. I've also started a Patreon now, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus content, and information about upcoming episodes for £5 a month. That's at patreon.com forward slash Thanks for listening.